My name is Reed, and uh, I am a member of this church. I moved here in 1995, and um, though my parents cared for me and took care of my basic needs, this church nurtured me and raised me and made me into the person I am today. Actually, six years ago, um, I think it was like in June of 2011, I preached my first sermon in New Heights. And yeah, I hope I've grown as a preacher since then. Um, Six years later, you can let me know if, if you were here that day and compare to today. But what a blessing, what an honor it is to be with this this congregation again, this, this family of mine, um, you have changed just like I've changed, but we've both changed for the better and grown in our love for each other and our love for Christ. And uh, I praise God and, and bless God for that. And I, I pray for you all constantly from afar, from all the way in North Carolina. And just know that God is doing great things through you and raising up leaders for the next generation uh, through this church. And you all are doing wonderful things and keep, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, I invite you to stand now if you're able. In this family, uh, and in most churches, we stand for God's word. We sit for human word, but we stand for God's. And today we'll be in Exodus. We're journeying through Exodus this summer. We're in the 17th chapter, verses 8 through 16. We're going to read about the Amalekites and how the Amalekites came and did battle with Israel and what happened there. Uh, I invite you to read along. The words will be on the screen behind me. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some men for us and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the sun set. And Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a reminder in a book and recite it in the hearing of Joshua. I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called it the Lord is my banner. He said, A hand upon the banner of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This, my brothers and sisters, this is God's word. It is given to us as a gift for us to proclaim. We are the people of God and we respond with thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, I'm sure one of the challenges you've encountered this summer as you're journeying through Exodus It's figuring out how this ancient and utterly foreign story can have bearing on us as the people of God today in the 21st century. Today's passage is no different. Exodus 17 is a difficult text, and it's going to take some wrestling, some struggling with the words of God for us to get a meaning that gives us life in this day and in this place. 
Well, when I was wrestling with it for the past couple of weeks, I came up with three different ways to understand this scripture. But I think out of those three, only one of them is going to to give us what we need to move forward today. But let me go through all three with you really quickly. The first one, the most obvious one that, that came to my mind when reading Exodus 17 is that this story is about God's uh, use and, and the people's justification for genocide, for, for the mass killing of an entire people group. I think that was the most obvious one. But you know what? I think as Christians, we cannot accept and affirm that one is life-giving. I don't think we can affirm genocide as the people of God. And let me, let me tell you why. First, if we look to our Jewish brothers and sisters, the people who have received this text, and interpreted it for thousands of years, you'll see that they aren't interpreting this passage as one that approves of genocide. By the time of Jesus, 2,000 years ago, they were already saying that Exodus 17 was about something much different. They noted that the people group called the Amalekites no longer existed 2,000 years ago. They were gone. And so that, that way of interpreting it so literally could no longer apply to the people of Israel. So they, they had to read it and find God's word in, in a new way. And so instead of reading the Amalekites as a people group, they started understanding this, this term Amalekite as an internal disposition, a way of the heart. When you're irreverent of God, when you have baseless hatred for humanity. And they said that that needed to be blotted out from the earth. So no longer is this passage about an ethnic cleansing, they said. It's more about a spiritual cleansing. And not only are our Jewish brothers and sisters reading it in a different sense, I think we as Christians need to read it differently too. If we believe that Jesus Christ is the most full picture of God that we're going to get, if we believe that his life and his teaching is is the clearest view of God, then I don't think we can affirm genocide as an option. Because what does Jesus tell us? Jesus doesn't tell us you must kill your enemy. You must wipe them off from the face of the earth. No. Jesus says we have to love our enemies. I bet there was some time in his life when he said you must love the Amalekite as yourself. Whenever I've encountered Jesus, whenever I've met Jesus, it's never been in a way that that tells me to hate another. So we believe as Christians that the Bible is inspired, right? That it's the word of God that points us toward God. But Jesus is the word made flesh, the one to whom scripture points. Jesus stands over the Bible. So we defer to Christ as our final example. And Christ would never affirm genocide. In fact, he died for the people like you and me, the people we would probably be called Amalekites. So if genocide is out, what's what's the second option? Well, maybe we could read Exodus 17 and understand it as a case study for the defense of the miraculous, that miracles exist and we point to Exodus 17 as an example. And while I'm not one to reject the miraculous, I think that's entirely within the realm of reason. I don't think we can use this text and receive life from it if that's all we're looking at it for. Once again, I think it would be smart of us to turn to our Jewish brothers and sisters for help. And when you read their commentaries, they're not talking about miracles here in Exodus 17. A miracle where God is acting unilaterally, where the people are passive observers and God is doing everything here. Instead, what the teachers tell us is that God is working through people, not in spite of people. 
And in fact, they can't even agree on the relationship between Moses' hands and the outcome of the battle. They, they can't really decide what that means. Some say it's a, a stance of prayer, that when Moses has his hands up, he's praying and transferring God's power onto the soldiers down below. Others say that it's a form of moral support, that whenever Moses' hands are up and he's cheering them on, that they fight harder. Whatever the reason may be, I don't think it would be smart of us to get caught up in the details here. I think that's going to lead us down a rabbit trail and away from the true meaning of, of this text this morning. So if genocide is out, if miracles are out, what are we talking about here today? Well, before I give you the third option, the one I think is the best, let's talk a little bit about the relationship between God and Israel, because I think that has a significant bearing on the setting here in Exodus 17. This summer, if you've been paying attention and following along with the churches, we're going through the story of Exodus. You've probably found out that it's it's a story about the birthing and the raising up of the child of God named Israel. How many of you are, are parents out here? Is anybody a parent? How many of you have kids? I think you have a keen insight into what's going on in Exodus. Better than my insight. I don't have children. Not yet. Um, I know my parents are saying amen. Uh, <laughs> so any of you who do have children, understand what the relationship is like between a loving parent and a needy child. That's what I see here in Exodus. You know that in the beginning of this parent-child relationship... All the interaction is one way for the most part. You have to feed the baby. You have to put the baby to sleep. You have to make sure the baby's not going to hit its head on any sharp corners. You have to wipe the baby's bottom. You're doing everything for the child. And the child may give you some intangible gifts back like happiness or joy, you know, love or whatever or lack of sleep. But you're not receiving any practical use from the, the child. It's just not able to give back to you at this point. Maybe when you're 80 years old, the kid will take care of you. But not yet. In the beginning, you're doing everything for the child. And furthermore, at this point in the relationship between a child and a parent, the child is at its most vulnerable. It's soaking up everything you parents do, for better or for worse. You're teaching the child how to live, how to interact with other people, how to behave the right way. So this child is at its neediest and at its most vulnerable. And I think that's what we're seeing here in Exodus. It's the unfolding of a relationship between a loving parent, God, and a very needy but quickly maturing child named Israel. God has to do everything for them in the beginning of Exodus. From the flight out of Egypt to providing manna and water in miraculous ways in the desert. You see God doing everything. But like I said, this child is maturing very quickly. And pretty soon God is going to have to transition in God's role as parent, right? I mean, think about it. As parents, can you be wiping the bottom of your 19-year-old child? Can you be spoon-feeding your teenager? Can you be covering up all the sharp corners for your adolescent? No, you can't. And what we see here in Exodus is God doing the same thing. God is moving from this helicopter parent stage to more of a behind the scenes who works carefully and who is present, but not doing everything for the child. The child is taking on more responsibility. And so this part of the story, this Exodus 17 passage, 
is a new stage in the relationship between God and Israel. God is, is pulling back, giving more space for Israel to grow up and to mature and to take on responsibility in the family. And this is where we see the true heart of God. You see, God delights in working alongside humanity to achieve God's hopes and God's dreams. God is a God of love. Now, don't hear me saying that God is not powerful enough to do everything still. God is still plenty able to accomplish what God wants to do. We are unable to stop that. But that's not how God chooses to act. Because God is a God of love, God delights in our free response. Love is is the willingness to be in relationship with another person or another thing. And to let that person freely choose how to respond to your love, to your, your devotion, to your care. And God has not made us to be machines, which is a wonderful thing. God has allowed us to freely choose to submit to God's will. And what we see in the fight against the Amalekites this morning is a story where the people of Israel are stepping into their role as God's partner, taking ownership in God's kingdom, growing in their role as representatives of the divine to the rest of the world. And God is there. God is working behind them. Much like a parent who stands closely by the side of a child who's learning how to ride a bike. God is there, not doing everything, not not pushing the pedals, but making sure the children do not fall. And so when we read this story 2,000 years later, I think it's closer to home than we first realize. I think it's got more to do with our lives today than we might first anticipate. You see... Through Christ's death on the cross and Christ's resurrection from the the grave, a new world order has been established. Jesus has been seated on the throne over in all creation. And us Gentiles who were once distant and strangers to God have, have been invited in to be children just like Israel. To be part of God's family and the great things God is doing. And what God is doing is restoring And renewing this this broken, this dark world. And we've been invited through this atoning sacrifice on the cross to participate with God. N.T. Wright, who's one of my, my favorite Christian authors, sums it up this way. He says, God intends to put the world right. So God puts us right in the present so that we can be part of his putting right project for creation. Now that we are in God's family, we've got a job to do, church. We've got a job to do. We have to help God consolidate his reign. To defeat those forces of of sin and wickedness, which are still very much present in our world today. Think about the nightly news when you turn it on. What do you see? You see fear, hatred, anger, racism, injustice. Violence. It's all very present in our lives. But God has summoned us because God is a God of love. God has summoned us to participate, to defeat those things with him. To make sure that Jesus is Lord over everything, not just us, the church. And we help participate in this new world order. We we follow God in his hopes and dreams by ascribing to the way of Jesus which is the way of the cross. 
So if you're a teacher or somebody who likes working with kids, I think that means participating in that child's education, giving them the best chance for a better life in the next day and the next. If you have the gift of hospitality, that means inviting over friends and strangers alike to share a wonderful meal around a table, much like we do at communion. If you're a parent or a brother or a sister, that means loving your family members like Jesus has loved us so that they in turn can go and love the world the way God wants us to. It's our gifts and our passions where those meet the deep needs of creation. That's where we're participating in God's kingdom. We're vessels of of love and grace pouring it out into the rest of the world. But you know what? The powers that be, those, those principalities and powers, as Paul calls them, they don't give up easily. They don't want to admit that Jesus is Lord. And so when we live into this mission of Jesus, when we're sons and daughters of the Most High God, we're going to meet resistance. It's going to be tough. It's hard to proclaim that Jesus is Lord in a world that doesn't recognize his lordship. And so when we meet difficulty, when troubles pile up in this world, it's easy for us to get dismayed, right? It's easy to let doubt start to creep in, to wonder if God is is really caught up in this thing that we call earth, in this thing that we call history. Is God present in this? Actually, the verse before we picked up in Exodus 17, I think it's 17 verse 7, Israel is questioning aloud whether the Lord is with them or not. And you notice when this, this doubt and this dismay starts to creep in in a really difficult place that that's when the Amalekites swoop in. When Israel is at its most vulnerable, its weakest place. And I think that's the same for our faith lives today. We begin to wonder if God is really with us. And we see the, the, the troubles start to pile up. And it's difficult. But you know what? God has offered us an antidote to this poison that we call doubt. God has offered us an antidote, and it's right here in Exodus 17. If you look at at verse 14, God says, write this on a scroll. And my, my version I was working with said, as something to be remembered. Or this version said, as a reminder. God tells us that we, when we are in the heat of the battle, when the going gets tough, When we feel like it's not worth it anymore, that we're on the verge of giving up, God tells us to remember. To remember. And remembrance looks like two different things. One, remembrance looks like looking back to the past and remembering that all that God has done. Remember those times when the Amalekites came and they fought God and God's people. And it looked like they were going to win. But they didn't. Remember those times in your life when you were at your wit's end and you felt like giving up, that you couldn't go on. But God stepped in and you're here today. Remember those times when it looked like the world was about to fall apart, but then it didn't. And remember, most importantly, what Christ has done on the cross. Colossians tells us that Christ disarmed the world's rulers and authorities on the cross. Christ made a public spectacle of them and triumphed over them on the cross. Remember this. 
And take confidence from these memories. Garner your strength from it. Use it to help you fight the battle in the present. So remembering looks like remembering the past. But it also looks like remembering the future. Remember what God has promised and what God has vowed to do for creation. God has said that God is taking everything back. That everything is going to be summed up under Christ. That all things will be renewed. And so we've been given this gift of hope as the people of God. And that is, that is a good gift because we know the end of the story. And it's a good ending. We don't lose. And so the Amalekites of, of today and of the future, while they're threatening, while they, they might have the power to hurt us or to even kill us, they've lost in the end. And that they're not going to get anything when it's all said and done. The power of memory gives us strength and the ability to be a hope-filled people. That God will set everything right in the end. And so my prayer for all of us here today is that we go out these doors and we burst forth into the world knowing that the battle has already been won. That we've been invited into this mission with God. That we've, we have a role to play in helping God heal this fractured world to bring light to this darkness. May we take every moment of our lives and, and use it as an opportunity to partner with God. To further God's hopes and dreams in this world. Until one day everything is set right again. And heaven comes to earth. Amen.